0: All right. This may seem like a very basic question, but what's our show called?
1: (laughs) Yes, it is called Dear White Women. And for what it's worth, I just expand on that for a second. We do get a lot of questions and comments about it. Things ranging from being called racist because we called white women white. Other people make assumptions and wonder if we're black and shaming white women, while others have wondered if we're white and giving all white women a pass. But hey, If you've been listening for a while, you know who we are. We'll tell you again shortly.
0: Exactly. And so when the email came into our inbox introducing us to a multimedia project called Jane Crow, then and now, I would say we were immediately intrigued because after all, Jane Crow or white women's support for white supremacy is something we've talked about a lot And the support of white women for white supremacy has gone on for way longer than most people realize. It's not just confined to the South, and it's a hugely prevalent force in our schools, all of our schools, meaning that students and teachers of color are often oppressed due to the power of white women's support of white supremacy.
1: Now, let's be brutally honest here with an example so you can imagine what we're talking about. And we'll be very clear, it may make you uncomfortable, but uncomfortable doesn't make it wrong or incorrect. Here's what I want you to to picture here. Remember the images of little Ruby Bridges walking into her school in Louisiana, the first child to desegregate the school? Who were the people protesting outside loudly and hatefully? If you said a lot of white women and white men, you would be correct, right? Keep in mind, Ruby Bridges is now only, I just checked it before we recorded, 68 years old. She's younger than my mom, So this is not old news, right? I'm going to say, and we're going to be pushing you here, because in the words of the project, quote, our deeply rooted cultural portrayal of white women as good, kind, pure, and in need of protection from harm obscures the reality that white women are humans who have blind spots, exercise power to pursue their self-interest, and can get defensive when held accountable. And conservative groups like Moms for Liberty, who, in the name of parental choice, heavy air quotes there, push back on racial and gender equity, for example, they have super deep roots in this country. So hopefully you can take that in with a deep breath. White women. This is we need to talk about this.
0: Yes, because as we've often said, for better or for worse, white women have a lot of power in their own spheres of influence, where two thirds of women voters are white. Eighty percent of public school teachers are white. And beyond that, one of these many spheres is so deeply personal, right? Because it's child rearing. It's the conversation and actions that white women are taking with regard to their own children and what they're teaching them, both implicitly and explicitly, that will change the course of the future. And I want you to just think about that as well, because it could go in the trajectory of collective good, or it could head towards individual gain. A lot of white women have chosen to uphold white supremacy through apathy or inaction, even if they don't consider themselves racist. Those who have chosen to walk against the tide of our country's trajectory towards racism, if you remember our moving walkway example that we really appreciate Dr. Beverly Tatum teaching about in the first place, those who have chosen to walk against that tide, right, have done so at great personal cost, but sometimes for even greater collective gain, which is our children's futures.
1: And so that's why on this eve of Mother's Day 2023, we'd like to highlight this project by Ed Post, which highlights the allies in history, the white women accomplices who challenged the system and worked for things like equity in education for Black and brown children, often, as you said, Misasha, at great personal cost. For white women who are looking for historical role models and sheroes, the Gallery of Accomplices provides a great list of resources to really encourage and inspire all people to deepen our historical knowledge and commitment to cultural humility, deeper listening when working with children, and families and communities whose experiences differ from our own. Because what better time to refresh our commitment to taking action based on our beliefs, I mean, if not every single day, for the betterment of our children's futures than certainly on Mother's Day. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps model and normalize conversations about race and racism so we can help more white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha.
0: So let's jump right into this gallery of accomplices and let's start with Lydia Maria Child, who lived from 1802 to 1880. And this quote from her, which is so powerful. And it is, every shackle on every human soul not only arrests my attention, but excites the earnest inquiry. What can I do to break the chain? And isn't that truly the question we should all be asking, not only because it's action-oriented, like you were talking about, Sarah, but it truly highlights how all of us are interconnected when it comes to freedom? So... I had no idea until I saw the gallery of accomplices that the poet who wrote Over the River and Through the Wood was Wait, also an. The, an over inter- the century. River and Through the Woods." To <laughs> I was trying to go. say that fast so you weren't going <laughs> to sing, but I knew. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> thank you, though. I always love hearing your voice. But the same woman who wrote that was also an intersectional feminist. Child caused a sensation with her first novel, written from a woman's viewpoint and featuring an interracial storyline between a European American settler woman and a Native American man. And again, this woman lived from 1802 to 1880. So you can only imagine that there were maybe zero novels out there like that at that time. An ardent abolitionist, journalist, and editor, Child never shied away from telling uncomfortable truths about the nation's history. She wrote the first major historical review of enslavement in the United States and published a book on atrocities committed against New England's indigenous peoples, probably making her very popular at the time. (laughs) She also served as editor for two important Black works, Harriet Jacobs' memoir, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, and the essential anthology, The Freedmen's Book, which helped educate thousands of formerly enslaved people. A leading advocate for true universal suffrage, Child was a threat to the existing social order and a model for those of us who live today.
1: I love that. What a story. Can I share somebody that jumped out at me from this? Okay, someone I wanted to highlight was Sandra Adikas. I hope I'm saying the name correctly. But she was a white woman born in 1933. So more in like the 1900s versus who you just talked about in the 1800s. And this was a quote that I thought was interesting. She said, I also believe, as for years I have been saying to students, that the best thing one can do when one is young is to become involved with a movement dedicated to making life better for others. I mean... Hello, making life better for others. That's huge. It ties us like right into current day research here in like the 2000s, research that says that spending money, for example, on other people, if you win money, spending it on other people makes us actually feel happier than spending money on ourselves, right? I love this idea of generosity, of community, of togetherness. That is powerful. And she was from 1933. That's when she was born. Okay. So Sandra Adikas was one of several New York City teachers who taught at Mississippi Freedom Schools in the summer of 1964. Great example of someone using the skills and the interests and the talents they have to make change. And when her students decided to apply for library cards from the segregated Hattiesburg Public Library, she accompanied them again. Getting her skin in the game, so to speak, and taking that action together. After the police expelled them from the library, they stopped for lunch at a Crest Five and Dime, and the waitress took the students' orders but refused to serve Adikas. So she sued the company. And ultimately, she settled with Crest and donated her settlement to fund Black students' college educations. Right? Like she went through this whole legal process and used the funds, again, for other people. So among those who benefited from her generosity includes a former Freedom School student and the Children of Slain civil rights leader, Vernon Dahmer. I just, I think about ripple effects from you choosing to use your skills and be there and do the next right thing, to quote Frozen 2. My
0: kids made me watch. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That literary work of genius, you mean? But I think you're so right also because she could have made the equal choice to not do any of that, right? Like, she didn't have to do any of that. She didn't have to go with her students to get library cards. She didn't have to fight the Crest Company. She didn't have to donate the money that she received in the settlement to fund Black students' college educations, because none of this had any direct impact on her. Or that's the argument that we hear today, right? And I think that It may not have had a direct impact on the trajectory of her life, let's say. But as you were talking about, Sarah, it's the ripple effect, right? Who knows who she impacted and in what ways in the future, right? And who they're you know, subsequent generations will be impacting as well. And when I think about also educators, right, I really love this next quote from Helen Heffernan, who was an educator who was born sort of right at the turn of the last century, 1896, and died in 1987. Because I feel like even though she said this at some point during her lifetime, it is so applicable today. And the quote is this, My major thesis is this, Education and democracy are to each other as roots are to the plant. Without education, there can be no democracy. If democracy disappears wholly from our earth, its demise will be coincident with the death of modern experimental education. And I think that is the crossroads that we are kind of at right this second. And she's so right.
1: That is totally fire. And saw that coming potentially, right? Like, Or is this another example of maybe history comes in cycles and it comes around again, but we are absolutely at this crossroads at this point in time too, if you think about what's happening in our education system right now in different states. Speaking of education, then I want to highlight the next two because they play off what you were talking about. Plus they were sisters and abolitionists together, which makes you think that their parents must have raised them right. Maybe, I don't know, but let's start with Angelina Grimke and maybe this will be a case in point about As parents, we can only do so much. But she lived from 1805 to 1879. And she famously said, I know you do not make the laws, but I also know that you are the wives and mothers, the sisters and daughters of those who do. And if you really suppose you can do nothing to overthrow slavery, you are greatly mistaken. So that shout out goes to the woman who stood next to my friend in Park City, Utah, and said, no, I'm not going to vote. My husband votes for our family right brain exploding if you Oops, have the totally privilege <laughs> yes it, like if you can like make change and make change for all of us we should be using these rights and privileges afforded to us because there are a lot of people who are fighting for those rights and who really want to be able to do that the reason i think they were tying into education is because southern white girls were not supposed to teach enslaved people to read especially not the enslaved children owned by their family but Angelina Grimke and her sister Sarah did. They're known as the Grimke sisters. I hope I'm saying that right, too. But they were not supposed to be challenging their family's wealth or question its origins. And using their family name and funds earned from running a school to advocate for immediate abolition, you can just imagine that was a big no-no also. But they did it anyway. Their public embrace of their Black relatives made them an exile in their home state. Their dedication to full suffrage and universal education made them a social pariah in the North. And so among white women, their willingness to challenge social norms was truly unparalleled. And I mentioned Sarah Grimke, who was Angelina's elder sister by 13 years, also said this, but I ask no favors for my sex. I surrender not our claim to equality. All I ask of our brethren is that they will take their feet from off our necks.
0: Those two. Mm -hmm. I think that, again, it's like such an example of, you know, they were daughters of a family who owned slaves. Right. So obviously the easy and comfortable route would have been to just like let that status quo ride. Right. Because why would you risk everything? Right. Social standing you know, your own sort of like trajectory in life to do what you believed is right. Your
1: family relationships. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But you did it anyway. And I think that's the power in that, right? You did it anyway. You fought for everyone because, you know, I think that there are so many examples of women making change, especially in education. And I think, you know, going back to what we were talking about, there is such a power in that sphere, right? Especially when 80% of teachers in public schools are white women. So moving from that, we've got two more folks to highlight, right? So first, not even Frederick Douglass could stop Martilla Minor, who lived only a short period of time from 1815 to 1864, from undertaking a dangerous mission, launching a teacher's college for young Black women in Washington, D.C., So kind of similar to the Grimke sisters, while teaching plantation owners' daughters in Mississippi, she was prevented from teaching enslaved people to read. A serious illness forced her to return north and change her strategy. So notice, she didn't give up. She just decided to do something different, and in 1851, Miner opened the Normal School for Colored Girls. Her first students were six daughters of freed slaves. Within months, more than 40 students were enrolled. She and her students persisted in the face of constant harassment and violence, including mobs trying to burn the school down. And Sarah, when you were talking about Ruby Bridges, right, and that view of her walking into school like this is the same thing. And it was happening prior to the Civil War. Right. What has changed? I don't know. Anyway, in a response to a mob-threatening violence, Miner said, "Mob my school, you dare not. If you tear it down over my head, I shall get another house. There is no law to prevent my teaching these people, and I shall do so wow. until death. Wow, yeah. So, man, that was a powerful statement, right? Though illness forced her to retire from teaching just six years later, and her original school was forced to close in 1860, the foundations she had laid for a school for Black teachers were revived after the Civil War. From Minor Normal School to Minor Teacher's College to the University of the District of Columbia and the Education Department of Howard University, Minor's legacy paved the way for thousands of Black teachers to enter public schools.
1: That's amazing. Hi, it's Sarah. Are you looking for another podcast that explores deeply personal conversations about race, identity, and culture? Then I highly recommend listening to one of our favorite podcasts, 10,000 Things, produced by our friends at KUOW. Seattle's NPR station. If you're a fan of This American Life, then consider 10,000 Things the equivalent of This Asian American Life, as it's a sound-rich celebration of Asian America. Each episode, host and award-winning poet, Shin Yi Pai, sits down with Asian Americans to explore objects that hold value in their lives and tell something about their story. The new season just launched, and its first episode is a can't-miss conversation with poet and educator Ibo Barton, who explores the power of names and their identity as a Black, Filipino, transgender, and non-binary individual. And later in the season, they'll have acclaimed activist Alice Wong on amplifying the voices of disabled people and dismantling systemic ableism. Needless to say, this season features an amazing combination of guests and stories, ranging from an artist with their paper resume to a conservationist with their steelhead trout. So go ahead, follow 10,000 Things on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast app. Tell them we sent you. Speaking of public schools, to circle back to where we started, and you just mentioned it, you may have heard of Barbara Henry, who was born in 1932, or maybe even seen her on talk shows. But when Ruby Bridges walked up the steps of her new school on November 14th, 1960, she had no idea what to expect from her teacher, this same Barbara Henry. Ruby Bridges says, I remember the first day meeting her. She looked exactly like the mob outside the classroom. In a 2020 interview, but the teachers who shared the mob's hostility to integration had all refused to teach her. Teachers actually quit their jobs because they didn't want to teach Black kids. Barbara Henry had a different view. She grew up in Boston, where she had studied with Black teachers and students at a private school now known as Boston Latin Academy. And shortly before coming to New Orleans, she had recently taught on an Air Force base in France where classrooms were integrated. So when the New Orleans superintendent called her to offer a position teaching first grade two days before Bridges was like ready to arrive, she accepted. So imagine both their surprise when they arrived at school and had to face like really angry mobs of white people. Bridges spent her first day in the principal's office watching angry white parents take their children home. The same day, Henry was sent home and was told she would meet Bridges the next day. Henry spent the remainder of that year creating a warm, intellectually challenging space for her only student. Ruby Bridges said in 2020, she cared about me, she made school fun, and ultimately I felt safe in that classroom. And Henry said in 2017, as much as I was there for her, she, Ruby Bridges, was there for me. It's really cool. In 1996, Bridges and Henry were reunited on the Oprah Winfrey show. Another Regis and I love Oprah. And afterwards, um, they gave talks together with Bridges and her story at the center and Henry playing a supportive role. And there's a really good podcast out there that Ruby Bridges actually tells this story for that I want to make sure we link and that you all get a chance to listen to if you haven't heard her tell her own story in her own words before. So look for the show notes for that.
0: I love that story. That story is so powerful on so many levels. And, you know, Sarah, I have to admit that as I was researching this episode and like thinking about who we were going to talk about from the gallery of accomplices, I kept thinking about that Derek R. Purnell interview that we did several years back and how she said there is no history being taught of white resistance. And I remember sitting there thinking like, wow, that is really, really powerful then and especially where we are now it feels even more powerful. So when you read these stories what did you think? Like how did that make you feel?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel incredibly inspired first of all. So I would say a huge thank you to Maureen Kelleher who's the editorial director at Brightbeam, which is the publisher for EdPost for telling us about this resource. Because to be honest, I'm also at the same time super inspired, super pissed off that I had not learned any of these stories before in my past. Like, these were absolutely stories that have not had the spotlight shown on them. Like, they have not been discussed in all of the projects and the readings that I have done. And I think it's so important to know that there are people who make differences like this, especially because nowadays we're hearing so many people and seeing so many people sort of do this. Performative allyship thing where they just sort of post something on social media or they say they care for something, but they're not actually doing anything. All of these women, way before social media existed, did these incredible things and people did not know about it aside from maybe even just the people they impacted, right? Nobody went in there planning to, I want to show that I'm an ally. I want to, like, you know, do this for my own ego. They also didn't be like, I'm going to do this because I'm going to have this long term impact. It really seems to me that they knew who they were, they knew their beliefs. They cast this critical eye questioning why things were the way they were in the spheres that they were involved in. And they decided to do something differently. They probably had to decide what to do or do something different every single day. And as a result, they turned out to be these great people doing the important things, both big and small, to support equity, to support humanity, because it is the right thing to do. So I loved it. And I kind of want to read more and learn more because I feel like that should give us all hope that it, things can be done. We can make differences. So we should not give up. We must persevere. How about you?
0: So I love everything that you said because I think that I will issue a disclaimer, right? As a grandfather who is a Civil War historian, I had heard of some of these women before, but I will say that I did not really learn about them in school at all. And just thinking about how, what if we taught kids about these people in school, like, it seems pretty simple, but it also reminds me that the key takeaway that I took away from this is that allyship requires action, right? It doesn't have to be something that was taught to you by your parents, because I'm pretty sure the Grimke sisters weren't being taught that by their parents who were slaveholders, right? But it does have to be something that you take on purposely and with intention to make things better. And Sarah, to your point, probably every day looked a little different, right? Because there are also a lot of these women lived in time periods where you couldn't even, you didn't have the same rights, right? Even close to the same rights. So I think about how much harder it was for them than us today, right? To act. And like, then that makes me think we should all be acting, right? Because these women were focused both on their own growth and ability to change situations using their own white privilege, but also on who they were truly serving and had some concept, maybe it wasn't that intentional of what lasting change might look like, right? Despite, as we've discussed, these incredible personal risks that they face because it is risky to stand up against the tide of history, especially in this country. Let's not, let's be very clear about that, right? But if that results in collective freedom and we decide also collectively to take this risk, isn't it all worth it? Because again, it's all of us or none of us. So this week, be an accomplice.
1: You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.